Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. Watch. Chop. Retrofit. Can I go ahead and get my plugs out of the way? Sure. Right here off the top, I want to plug the band Creed. People who eat Spam salad instead of ham salad. And then also those dudes who leave their shopping cart in the parking lot. The very best of humanity. This is not a Degenerates podcast. (laughs) This is Cinema Chop Shop. Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop, everybody. It's episode 300. 300 episodes. That's like almost as much as they paid that new picture for the Dodgers. Almost. Travis, you started this podcast on a lark. Yeah, it was a it was a dare. You and Andrew, somebody dared me to do it. Kind of did it, and you were your first recording was on a real bad a bachelor's party. Weekend? No, 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 that wasn't the that wasn't the that first recording. That wasn't the first one. Okay, the the very first one was um, in Andrew's apartment. Okay, and it was like uh, we were cavemen <laughs> crowding around a single microphone, <laughs> uh, wishing it was fire. Uh, well, we've come a long way, baby. I'm glad to have been a part of the journey with you and our guest tonight, Todd, who is uh, Johnny Come Lately in Correct, the big scheme yeah. of things, but a uh, very welcome guest. Thank you, you were a little late. What we'll be doing for today that was a th- that is a throwback is actually the first time I will be doing it. So this is a recasting, new, new territory for you. The original name of the podcast was <coughs> the recast, correct? And then we found out there was some other podcast called that. Yeah, it was about fishing. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, like actual fish, like not talking like about lures and shit. Personal data. Um, I might send him a chop shot better. It's better. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So Joey was supposed out. to be here, but he had a family medical thing that mm-hmm. kind of kept him out of pocket all day. So Thoughts and prayers. So anyway, hope you uh, get through that, Jojo. We might have some special guests in the post-edit of this. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Right, some like sound clips yeah. from people. Yeah. I dig it. So without further ado, I mean, I mean, besides being the milestone 300th episode, it's kind of fucking crazy, but we're just going to charge forward and do our thing. It's 300 episodes of this silly, silly show. I once texted you cinema chop shop is, and always will be the diary of a madman. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to say, 300 episodes, Morty, a thousand years, forever and ever. (laughs) But we're going to trudge on because we got work to do tonight. And Mm -hmm. the first thing we're going to talk about is, fittingly enough, is the movie 300. Oh, you mean the uh, homoerotic epic from the year... 2007. 2007. Directed by Zack Snyder. Yes. He was still wet behind the ears. (laughs) But he still had his uh, signature muddy color style that he's become famous for. Now, a lot of people liked the color scheme of this movie. Well, it was uh, originally a graphic novel written and illustrated by Frank Miller. Frank Miller and uh, Lynn Varley. That's his uh, life partner, colorist. Mm. They worked together on his famous uh, Dark Knight Returns graphic novel that brought him into the public spotlight, even though comic fans would know his work going back to his days on Daredevil. This was a graphic novel that he did. Uh, This is about the uh, 300 Spartans versus the, uh, uh, whatchamacallits, the Persians. Persians, Persians, uh, Led by King Xerxes. Thermopylae. Mm -hmm. And uh, 480 B.C. 
So simple enough a story, and they had to somehow stretch this into a feature-length film. Uh, the graphic novel itself, I think it might be 64 pages. So it's right. not, not a lot of substance. That's like two yeah. minutes a page. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that this movie fails the Bechtel test. Because mm. yes. the only women in it are either his wife, played by Cersei Lannister. Lena Headley. That's Headley. Yes. <laughs> Nice uh, uh, Blazing Saddles yes, reference. Yes. And the um, woman of the night, the, the women, sex workers. The sex workers. Right. There were a harem of sex workers that flung themselves at the hunchback when he turned mm-hmm. uh, sides. Mm-hmm. And they had practically no lines. Right. So this is a... a guy's movie mm-hmm. and that's putting it nicely in yeah. more ways than one yeah todd what did you think of this film because we watched it for the first time uh last week can i say real quick before you go uh that it has a 61 percent on rotten tomatoes and it was made on a budget of 60 million and to this date has grossed $456 million. Well, we'll get to that in just a second as All to right. why, because that was something mm-hmm. we discussed during the watching of the film. Before you give us your opinion, let's go over the cast real quick. Gerard yeah. Butler, big breakout role for him. You yep. already mentioned Lena Headley, uh, David Wenham, Dominic West playing mm-hmm. the uh, bad guy senator with the evil goatee, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a very young looking Michael Fassbender. Right. Among others. But. Also, uh, Rodrigo Santoro played Xerxes. Oh, that's right. He really yeah. uh, uh, he leaned in. Leaned in with a very effeminate portrayal of uh, Xerxes. Yeah. All right, Todd, what were your thoughts? The movie itself I found underwhelming. Um, visually, I don't remember if it was you or Joey who thought it looked a little dated. I thought for what it was going for, which was that uh, comic book style, and even though I haven't read 300, I am familiar with that visual style, I thought they actually did a pretty good job of capturing that element. Did Frank Miller also do Sin City? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I mm-hmm. gotcha. Yep. And so that visual style... I think based off of what they were trying to recapture from the comic books, I actually think they did a a pretty good job with that. But it seems just kind of like an empty suit at the end of the day. Uh, We're supposed to care about the Spartans. It's almost like, you know, they they want us to view that as kind of like a Braveheart Mel Gibson kind of thing. And I... Friday Night Lights. Yes. And any given Sunday. (laughs) Any of those. Fill in the blank with your, you know, uh, inspirational (laughs) war or sports film. But I found it very difficult to care about the Spartans. And what I don't, I can't, I couldn't even articulate for you exactly what their issue with the Persians was. In fact, at the beginning of the movie, they seem kind of like the assholes. Yeah. Um, and so Thus the rousing war. speeches and what we find out at the end about the narration, I just couldn't have cared less about it. I didn't find it yeah. uh, exciting. It just seemed like a very testosterone-filled mm-hmm. jizz fest. Yes. As I've said many, many times over the years, Zack Snyder is very good at staging action, mm-hmm. choreographing action, and when you have a really great template, which would be a graphic novel with these great stills, he's very, very adept at um, recreating those. 
where Zack Snyder falls short for me is the human connection. He the right. writing. He well, yeah. <laughs> even even if you have poor writing, a director can pull something from an actor to to elicit a, an emotional response from the audience. Right, and right. that's something that I don't think Zack Snyder understands. And that is true of the Watchmen. That's true of the Justice League. That's true of so many of his films. You just don't care. They're yeah. just going I, through these action sequences and the motions to mm-hmm. get to the end of the film. Yep. And then, of course, the uh, other element that was uh, became a j- running joke throughout the film was the homoeroticism that I feel like, in ret- as I've thought more about it, could not have possibly been an accident. I mean, surely they thought about as they were making this film, there's only one woman in here who's who's a, other than the prostitutes that appear, mm-hmm. uh, one, one who has speaking Sex roles. Workers. And there are all kinds of like homoerotic bro moments between uh, the fast benders character and who was the other character that I they can't remember uh, when they're oiling each other down my favorite part is yes. the, the post battle scene where they're tending each other's wounds yes and there's that one scene where the kind of guy he arches his back and goes oh yeah and he's like stroking down his back and i'm like these they just finished having an orgy and that's what I, it seemed like and then i think about these people that are like all about the Spartan race and 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 these uh, these weekend warrior guys who look to this film as kind of like this is how bros are supposed to be, bro. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, you yep. got some issues you need to map out. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with no, it, but no. it's just I saw this film as being an extremely homoerotic film. Yes, and anyone who doesn't see it, I, I'm like, how can you not? Yeah. How can you not? But. To the blind, uh, at the heart of the story is the resilience and valor of the Spartan warriors, particularly King Leonidas, who becomes a symbol of defiance and heroism, much like Cinema Chop Shop. (laughs) (laughs) Todd mentioned the uh, my issue I had with some of the uh, effects. My biggest problem was the the hunchback character, and I think I mentioned Mm -hmm. this to you last weekend, Quasimodo. Well, as we said, he's a combination of Quasimodo and uh, Gollum. Yes. But the the CGI, the tracking, he has like a bulging eye Mm -hmm. on on his right right side. Like they do. And it's always in shadow. And the tracking on it's not quite right. Like he'll move his head and the eye will kind of like float and Mm -hmm. jiggle a little bit. So this is the exact same uh, complaint you had about the holdovers. With Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Shut up. No way. No way. No complaints about the holdover. No, you said his eye didn't match up. No, I think that was intentional. I think they were uh, fucking with okay. us. I think that was an intentional thing. Having the eye op- alternate. Can I talk a little bit about the critical response to oh, this please. film? Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. The film received a standing ovation at its world premiere in front of... Lots and lots of dudes. 1,700 audience members at the Berlin International Film Festival. Mm, I thought you were going to say the Hair Club for Men convention or something. I'm not only the president, I'm also a member. Yes. It had been panned at a press screening hours earlier. So there was a difference of opinion. Yeah, Agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Many of the attendees at the press screening left during the showing, and those who remained booed at the end. <laughs> Some of the most unfavorable reviews came from major American newspapers. A.O. Scott of the New York Times described 300 as, quote, 
about as violent as Apocalypto and twice as stupid. <laughs> My God. Wow. <laughs> While criticizing its color scheme and suggesting that its plot includes racist undertones, Scott also poked fun at the buffed bodies of the actors portraying the Spartans, declaring that the Persian characters are, quote, pioneers in the art of face piercing, <laughs> uh, but that the Spartans had to access superior health clubs and electrolytus facilities. Well, I think we did uh, comment that uh, Butler's uh, eight-pack looked uh, like CGI in one scene. Anatomically in impossible. Yes, exactly. So All right, so funny. that's 300. Wow, right? yes. That's kind of interesting, though, that it's 61% because that's more on the positive side. Cause it, yeah, that means a lot of people are dumb. Yeah. Most people are dumb. Yeah. Well, it was 2007, and there were some really bad films that came out that year. It, was, no, I will it demonstrate, was no 1999. It was no 1999, which we're going to do that episode. Hey, Cinema Chomp Shop. This is Andrew up in Canada. Just wanted to say congratulations on 300 episodes. 300. Wow. This is part of a great tradition in podcasting. And uh, I'm so happy to have been able to uh, help the show in its early years and I've learned so much from you guys and been able to impress people with so many cool little nuggets I've learned on the show. So, uh, yeah, thanks, and here's for 300 more. All right, well, then let's go ahead and jump into our round robin. Round robin. We've all all selected films that have numbers figuring heavily in the titles. Correct. We're going to give our little synopsis or thoughts or what have you, and then we're going to finish... With a recast of at least the main character of each film. I already For old time's sake. We should have mentioned, by the way, that Todd has a very phallic beer can for his review of 300. It's massive. Mm -hmm. Not too girthy. Doesn't suffer from over length. No, it is what you would consider to be a... uh, a Spartan can. Yeah, I think the Spartan soldiers would have been very excited if this showed up uh, on the at, battlefield. Uh, on the battlefield, or at the uh, licking of the wounds. Oh, there at you the go. End. The end. licking. Yeah. That was actually the name of the scene in the script. All right, Todd, uh, you're first. Okay. Uh, the first film I did. I'm a big uh, Alfred Hitchcock fan, and so one of the first films that popped into my head was uh, from 1935 during his uh, when he was still making films in Britain, uh, which is the 39 Steps. Uh, The 39 Steps, so just to kind of run through the plot real quick, and I'll try to avoid uh, too many spoilers, but uh, um, it's uh, one of Hitchcock's typical wrong man type of plots. He actually has a film called The Wrong Man, but it's a common thread throughout Hitchcock's films where a man who is perfectly outside of the machinations that he gets involved with gets ripped into it by some accident. And so, in this case, a fellow named uh, Richard Haney is at this event watching uh, this guy called Mr. Memory, who uh, has this uh, steel trap memory, and the premise is that people shout out historical events to him, and he gives them, uh, from memory, uh, the data from it. In 1992, the Berlin Wall fell down! Yeah, essentially things of that nature. Of course, though, that was much later, but... 
that's essentially what uh, he this guy does. Uh, people shout out some, you know, what's blah, 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 and he, he gives them the numbers. Okay, uh, this becomes important later on. We don't know why, but what happens at this initial event with Mr. Memory is that uh, Hane is there just for fun, and he gets sucked in to this... Uh, spy these spy games essentially when a gun goes off no one is shot or killed Chekhov's uh, gun no not technically but it does function much as Chekhov's gun functions okay so um, when the gun goes off this woman randomly kind of attaches herself to Hane she seems very frightened you know, ostensibly because of this incident that's happened with a gun going off he's kind to her and she goes back with him to his flat. And so it's kind of a random thing. Uh, while they're at the flat, she explains to him why she's afraid and explains these things with the spies. We don't get yeah. a lot of details. Though. For a lot of the movie, we don't really know exactly what's going on. We don't know what the 39 steps are until the very end of the film. Um, first one is acceptance. Yes. <laughs> second one is forgiveness. Yes. Um, and then the, there's a long part in the movie where he has to call up all the people who he's wronged in his life. And mm-hmm. anyway, um, Scientology, out. <laughs> it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. <laughs> same um, thing. Yes. Anyway, so literally the same thing. Literally. Yep. Anyway, he doesn't really believe her, but he kind of takes it in stride, offers her a place to stay. And then in the middle of the night, she bursts into his bedroom with a knife in her back. She's oh, been stabbed no. to death. Yes. That's the worst way to burst into somebody's bedroom. Exactly. <laughs> I know he was probably excited at first, and then, you know, when she fell down, knife in the back. Anyway, in her hand, she is clutching a map with uh, this particular building circled called Haltnashalak. Now he has to sneak out of the building. He knows that she was telling the truth. There are these two guys wandering around, etc. Basically, uh, he ends up getting handcuffed to this woman. And actually, this happens very late in the film. Usually, the man and woman get teamed up together much earlier in the film. This happens like in the last 30 minutes. This woman... So, there's, I, have to, I do have to explain this. There's a scene on a train where he's trying to get away from the cops. He bursts into this room to get away from them and kisses a woman to create a diversion so that they'll think that he is not the person that they're after. He tells the woman very quickly who he is and then hoping that she'll understand and feel sorry for him. And instead of that, she says, hey, this is the guy you're yeah. looking for. <laughs> we don't see this woman again until towards the end of the film. She points him out at this event they go to. I won't go too much into that. It, she points him out to the cops who then arrest him, but they make her go with them to officially ID him. Turns out these fellows are not actual cops. They are the spies. They were, uh, so they're whisking them away to probably get rid of them. Uh, they end up handcuffing Hane to the woman, and then that creates sort of some comedic hijinks. She still doesn't believe him for a long time. Something happens at a hotel. She overhears the, the spies talking downstairs, finally believes them, etc. Okay, it's one of these uh, spy game type things. Mr. Memory comes back at the end. I don't want to give it away as a spoiler in case people... Uh, but we find out finally at the end of the movie what the 39 steps are, which almost doesn't even matter. It's almost incidental what that whole thing was about. It's a lot of steps. Yes. And why not just go for 40? Yeah. You're already almost there. Right. Can you tell us, for old time's sake, 
who you would recast in this movie. Indeed. So the first thing to know about the 39 steps is uh, Hitchcock himself recast it uh, 24 years later. He what? did a he didn't he didn't do a straight remake, but he did a readaptation of the material as North by Northwest with Oh Car- shit, with Cary Grant. Grant and Eva Von Saint. The plot Have is you very been similar. Watching Archie? Uh, no, I haven't. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Uh, it's it's pretty okay. Okay, okay. Well, first of all, the actors who played Richard and A was a guy named Robert Donat, uh, thirty years it's old. Pronounced Donut. Uh, I actually <laughs> looked it up to make sure I wasn't like it wasn't Donay or something mm, like that. Um, and uh, he won the Academy Award. Uh, the other film he's famous for is Goodbye, Mr. Chips from 1939. Mm-hmm. He won the Academy Award for that. And then the actress who plays the woman he was handcuffed to, uh, Madeline Carroll, uh, she, this was pretty much the main, I mean, she did other films, but this was her big uh, one that she's remembered for in history. For my recast, which we're doing now, uh, after 1959, I thought about this, so I, I felt like we needed actors. I don't think you really thought about it. Yeah. We need actors from the we need actors for the UK because I want that British e accent like from uh, or in the, in one case I guess it'd be an Irish accent but he can he can tweak it a bit a for UK Richard Hane, yeah for Richard Hane's character I picked Michael Fassbender who we mentioned earlier okay so Very Fassbender good. is not as elegant as someone like Cary Grant can be but he could play that to an extent but add a rougher edge to it which I think for a modern audience you would want you would want the character not to be quite as like the 39 steps the tone of that uh, I don't think would quite work today and so you want a little bit of an edgier guy and so I think Fassbender has the chops to play regal but then also a little edgy and then for the female character uh, Pamela was the name of the character Margot Robbie Robbie I should say when you you can say Roby, you can say Robbie. Robbie, yeah. I don't think she's mad about it. Yep. Um, but she's about the age of the two actresses. Margot she, Barbie. Yep. I she, think she can pull off the comedy that's required of that role. She's got a cute British accent if you ever hear her talk in real life. So those are my two picks, Fassbender and Robbie. I think uh, recasting. 25 minutes later. I think so, that recasting Margot is a rite of passage for every guest on the show. You have to. When we do recast, because I'm She's pretty sure she has shown up with every guest that's ever done Oh, absolutely. Yeah, everyone wants to I mean, I tried to be no. a little more creative, but I'm, I'm I mean. Not, I'm not, it's not a knock. It's just one of those things everyone grabs it, because she's good. Yeah. Uh, Travis? Yes, sir. What's your movie? Uh, my first one is a little movie. Well, I, I just want to ask you. What's in the box? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a movie called Seven, stylized oh. as S-E-7-E-N, uh, because it was really cool in the 90s to include numbers in everything. When did this come out? Uh, we're talking 1995. All right. Directed by David Fincher. Yes. It's got an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. Too low. It's based on a 1988 comic book of the same name. Nope, that's a different thing. <laughs> that was 300. Um, but it did have a budget of 300. Or excuse me, 34 million, and gross 327 million. It's a psychological thriller. It stars Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, and. The um, the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. No, Gwyneth Paltrow. No, 
And then Kevin Spacey about Kevin as Spacey? well. Well, Kevin Spacey is the... Eventually, we find out he's the big bad. But it's a thriller that is um, about two detectives. One is younger, one is older. And they are trying to solve this serial killer murder um, where the killer is essentially reenacting the seven deadly sins. The film unfolds as a cat and mouse game between the detectives and the cunning serial killer who seems to be taunting them with cryptic clues. The relationship between the seasoned, weary detective Somerset and the ambitious, hot-headed detective Mills is tested as they overcome the grim realities of the case. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I saw this, it broke my brain. Like, the victims of these sins, yep. it was crazy. Yeah, very right? gruesome. Especially, who? which sin was it? The, the guy who essentially had been starved for a year? Do you remember? Was that, was that gluttony? No, that's the opposite. Gluttony was the guy that was just so fat. He was like okay, sitting yeah, up at his yeah. table. I'm trying to remember why did it, what, what that one he was. was. Like, he was like into the mattress. Yeah, he was barely alive. Yeah. So um, the, uh, we were talking about this a few weeks ago when we were prepping for this episode. The DVD for this was exceptional because Fincher and... Pitt were doing the commentary mm-hmm. and they were talking about how the guy that was cast in that role when he originally auditioned he was like like 97 pounds when he showed up for the day of the shoot he was 83 like what? some ridiculous number and it was like we feel uncomfortable shooting and the guy's like no dude I'm fine I'm, I'm fine. good it's cool yeah I'm I good. prepped but every single one of those kills had an incredible amount of detail and the production quality behind it is incredible. Just stuff that we, the viewer don't even see that, that that was added to just create this world. And it's fantastic. And also one of the things that always intrigued me the most about this movie was the fact that Kevin Spacey insisted when he was cast, because this comes on the heels of the usual suspects he insisted that I don't want to be known. I want no no part of the publicity. Don't list me. In but the... it's kind of a similar role. It is a very where similar. Where he's role. revealed very... at the end to yeah. be. Well, it was very spoiler Im- alert. Yeah. Well, it's very the important. Big bad, the villain. Yeah. yeah. So it's very important that we not know that Kevin Spacey was in this movie because the timing. Eventually, you're gonna be like, well, Kevin Spacey's in this, and obviously, we know that he's the killer. How many right. times do you think you've seen this movie? About seven. <laughs> I was going to say eight or nine, but seven's a good number. <laughs> All right, so a little bit of critical response. Hit it. Uh, critics such as Roger Ebert and Dustin Howe describe Seven as an intelligent, well-made film that could comfortably land, stand, alongside other thrillers. Others compared Seven unfavorably with The Silence of the Lambs, and the usual suspects saying seven lacks the other films intelligent narrative and takes itself too seriously as an examination of evil instead of a quote silly piece of pulp the orlando sentinel said however seven offers a quote terrific film noir 
atmosphere and excellent performances with the Seattle Times saying the film would be unendurable without Freeman and Spacey. Really? See, I, I enjoyed the film. I love the pulp and the noir quality about it. Exactly, yeah. And can we tell them what's in the box? It's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Yeah. Mm. But it has a candle in there with the aroma of her own vagina. There you go, yes. Mm. Um, it's not Justin Timberlake's dick, though. So tell us, Travis, in a box. Uh, what is, uh, what's your recast? All right, so I had... A couple of options. I first, I was thinking, you know, like pretty boy, rugged, blonde. Uh, I went with Garrett Headland, who's a, a, around the same age that Michelle, my lovely wife, Michelle. Uh, she was like, who's Ken in Barbie? Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. And I was like, nah, too mainstream. And so then I was like... All right, I got it. He's rugged. He's obscure. He's been in some things lately, and his star is rising. Sturgill Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Sturgill okay. Simpson is my Brad Pitt in seven. So Brad Pitt was 32 at the time, and Sturgill Simpson is 45. Very nice. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to talk about a 1999 film called 8mm. Ah, with Nico Cage. This was directed by Joel Schumacher, and I'm going to be ripping on Joel Schumacher for a little bit, so please stand (laughs) I don't hate Joel Schumacher. uh, Falling Down is one of my favorite movies. I just hate people whose family lineage is derived from people who make shoes. Oh, (laughs) shots fired at... uh, our former co-host. <laughs> anyway, this film stars Nicolas Cage, a very young Joaquin Phoenix, James Gandolfini, mm-hmm. Catherine Keener, and an even younger Norman Reedus. Norman oh, Reedus? Okay. Norman Reedus. From The Walking Dead. From The Walking He's Dead. He's Daryl. He plays the uh, boyfriend that ended up getting put in jail. The boyfriend of the girl that was abducted or whatever, mm-hmm. or killed or what have you. Well, this is an era where he was in a handful of movies like The Faculty and um, I'm, Reedus and The Faculty? Mm-hmm. What's That's funny awesome. about Reedus is that he has the exact same haircut in this film that he does in The Walking Dead. I think he's always had the same it's just the, It's the same hair, but his face is younger. It's yeah. really unnerving. So you have a private detective who's hired by a wealthy widow to determine the authenticity of a snuff film found in her husband's Mm -hmm. safe. That's the premise. Apparently he's a really good private detective. He comes with impeccable references. He is total discretion. That was very important. Credit to Nicholas Cage, uh, low key, low tone private investigator. He almost cages out a couple of times in the film. But even then, he kind of dials it in a little. So high marks for that. The music was by an artist named Michael Dana. Michael Dana has a long, long, long history of film soundtracks. He's won multiple awards. The Another that he's really known for is another uh, number film, Pi. Pi, oh. 3.14157. That was actually going to be Joey Poole's selection. Uh-huh. Um, I was aware of Michael Dana back in my college days when I was a nerd who listened to music from the hearts of space. So back when you were a nerd? Yes. 
always a nerd though. Uh, music from the hearts of space. Public radio is like ambient new wave, new age, like uh, <coughs> kind of like sleep music. And Michael Dana started his career making this music. So he pivoted from that into the much more lucrative uh, soundtrack stuff. The soundtrack has like this Middle Eastern flavor. It's like uh, Middle Eastern uh, street bazaar kind of okay. music, which plays into this crazy world that Nicolas Cage is entering into of, of investigating pornography, snuff mm-hmm. films, trying to get to the heart of whether or not this snuff film is real. And that to me is the standout in this movie. The music drives this thing. However, this is an R rated film. And most directors, I think, would have the wisdom to say, I can't depict deep, hardcore kink porn on camera. And murder. And murder. I can't depict all of that and still keep it R-rated. Instead, I should leave some of that to the imagination of the viewer. However. However, Joel Schumacher turns the camera to the film and shows some of the goofiest fucking depictions of simulated pornography for an R-rated audience. And it just makes the film laughable from the word go. Mm. I heard it was unsimulated. James Gandolfini is playing James, James Gandolfini in this movie. He is a porn producer. Nicolas Cage locates him and in Los Angeles. And then kind of with the help of Joaquin Phoenix, who happens to be a clerk in a porn store who knows porn. Yeah. He knows the underworld of porn, helps him locate this pornographer in New York that's connected to the L.A. pornographer, and they somehow connect the dots and figure out that these people did make the snuff film. They did kill the girl. Sorry, spoiler alerts for a terrible movie. In the end, Joaquin Phoenix dies. James Gandolfini dies. Uh, the pornographer dies. The only one left is the Dom, the Dom and the uh, film with the leather mask and whatnot. He's actually played by the sh- guy who played the sheriff in True Blood. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not good. They have like a little battle and ultimately Nick Cage wins and he goes home to his wife, Catherine Keener, which I'm sorry, Catherine Keener, that you had to be in this movie. It's terrible. Oh, and this is another thing. (laughs) Joel Schumacher. If you're going to depict a a sadistic pornographer slash killer, which was the, the end game and the thing he had Danzig posters all over his wall. However, there were bat nipples on Glenn Danzig. I'm sorry, but if Glenn Danzig is your, like, peak of evil, you're a joke. Yeah. So I just had to laugh. Um, My recast. Um, I'm going to recast Christian Bale in the Nicolas Cage role. All right. Well, you know, Schumacher did the Batman films. Christian Bale was a Batman. Yeah. He's going to be my Batman. It's going to be a better production. Yeah. I think it's cool. I think it's pretty cool. All right, it's time we take a break. Uh, I think that uh, we need to uh, go pee in the yard. I want to pee in the yard. Me too. Let's do it together. But before we say, let's let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. And get ourselves a $100,000 bar. Nice numbers. Ahoy, Chop Shoppers. This is Chief Corrections Officer Dana. 300 episodes? This is madness! I was happy to be your long-distance pedant for a few years and do lots of Googling and watching of YouTube videos to sort out your stumblings. Donald Gleason made it easy on me by making a video pronouncer. But who could forget the star of Lady Bird and Atonement? 
swore East Ronin. I sure can't. Anyway, I raise a glass to all of you in the celebration of your 300th. Here's to many more cinematic discussions, pick-aparts, and dips in the pool. Tonight, we chop in hell! And we're back. We Guess all, who's back? We all did a little pee in the yard. Literally, we all peed in the yard. At the same time, different corners. We didn't cross the streams. Not at all. Travis, what do we like to do when we come back from intermission? It's a little bit of a thing called a beer check-in. We have sirens outside. Mm-hmm. They're mad. They're coming for us. Beer check-ins. Uh, I decided to get us something special. Mm-hmm. A little special for the special occasion. This is Big Bad Baptist. Uh-oh. Chocolate caramel sea salt imperial stout aged in whiskey barrels with cacao sea salt and natural flavors added from epic brewing i want this in my life i've never had a bad big bad baptist ever and usually their special treatments are exceptional so and while he's pouring us those uh mine was not a popular choice this week the voodoo ranger uh, fruit force which is a fruit punch ipa uh sean made a face when he Took his initial sip. I believe he does that a, sometimes. A twisted yeah. face. Mm-hmm. It got, I thought it got a little bit better as you went on and got kind of used to it, but twisted it's definitely not. Fiction. It's definitely Sick not great. Addiction. Gather round, children. Zip it. Listen. Oh my goodness. That's a dessert right there. There it is. Yeah, it tastes like um, a like chocolate a- pie. And sometimes those imperial stouts that have the whiskey barrel element are the aftertaste I find a little unpleasing. And this one... You won't uh, find it here. Nope. It's, it's really great. nice. Yeah, as I said, I've never been disappointed by any of their variations. So, uh, hooray. Happy 300. If you could be any bag of chips, what bag of chip would you be? Uh, I think I'd go with Cheetos. You're going to be a Cheeto? Yeah. Are you talking about the puffy ones or the thin ones? I'm a crunchy guy. Crunchy, yep. okay. Uh, but for two reasons. One, I just love how the crunchy ones taste. And then also Chester Cheetah is pretty cool, man. So <laughs> I'd be a Funyun. Funyun. <laughs> You'd be a Funyun. I'm going with the um, the Doritos that have the uh, like lime slash... The chili mm. lime? Yes, the mm. chili lime Doritos. Those are nice. actually pretty good, yeah. I say Funyun because while I'm delicious, I will cut you. <laughs> Just don't confuse your Funyuns with fake calamari. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, let's dive back into our round robin, shall we? Yes, we shall. I think we've all got one more, and then we'll maybe fill in some time with some other shit. Uh, Todd, go ahead. Give uh, us what you're uh, what you're thinking for the next. Okay, this is one of my all time favorite films, uh, Twelve Angry Men, and uh, it's directed by Sidney uh, Lumet, uh, who ended up being one of the great directors of the new Hollywood era. This was yep. actually his first film, um, and then he later directed films like uh, Serpico, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Network. Uh, so, you know, one of the great directors of that period. I haven't heard of any of those. <laughs> Question. Um, yes. So, um, this was his first film? Yep, this was okay. his first feature-length film. Um, it was based off of a play by this guy named Reginald Rose, and if, you see the, if you've seen the film, you can see totally how it would have been a play. Uh, Reginald uh, Rose um, adapted his play for the screen, yes. 
was this the first version of 12 Angry Men? No, it was uh, so uh, Reginald Rose originally uh, wrote it as a, uh, I think, a teleplay. Uh, and in fact, the Criterion Collection version, which I have, has uh, that uh, very grainy looking uh, okay. version. I think it was Playhouse 90 was a famous. Don't quote me on that, but it was one of those shows like Playhouse 90 that came on on the early in the early 50s of early television. Okay. Um, you know, Rod Serling was a part of that. Requiem for Heavyweight was another one that was a famous one of that era. But anyway, uh, so Reginald Rose, uh, he originally wrote it for as a teleplay, and then he reconstructed it for uh, this film. Uh, and then Sidney uh, Lumet uh, directed it. Uh, again, his very first film, 1957, is when this came out. Um, and uh, so the the premise, and I, I won't have to belabor it quite as much as The 39 Steps, which was extremely convoluted. Uh, 12 Angry Men, pretty simple premise. You have a uh, minority who has uh, been accused of murdering an elderly person in their apartment, he is on trial. He is facing the death penalty. And then you have 12, um, all-male, all a 12-person all-male jury um, with one person who is a, you know, a, a foreigner, I guess you'd say, um, but a Somebody citizen. who's not an old white man. Exactly. They have one. He's essentially, though, a white European. But, you know, he's earned his... Uh, uh, citizenship, which becomes kind of a thing in one scene. But anyway, um, so uh, the premise is, is, is pretty simple. There's this murder that's happened. They've had the trial. We don't see the trial. What we see is them entering into the uh, deliberation chamber to discuss what happened and how they're going to vote. The way the film begins is um, they do the initial vote. It's 11 to 1. So the one guy who does not uh, vote for it is juror number 8, who is played by Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda! Yes. One so, of the great Fondas. Exactly. Uh, I'm very fond of him. Yep. Henry Fonda, father of Jane, uh, one of the great actors of the classic, uh, you know, Hollywood that movie, cinema. Barbara Fella. <laughs> and, uh, and, yes, Barbara Fella. On Golden Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In any case, uh, so uh, the, he was about 55 when this movie was made, so this was kind of later in his career, but uh, he was definitely essentially the leading role in this, and in fact, he had a big role in this getting made. Um, he really liked the teleplay that Reginald Rose had written, and, and it was a major factor in, in it getting made. Okay, so uh, none of the characters, we don't know any of their names. They're all juror 1, 2, 3 through 12, um, and he's juror number 8. Uh, and so uh, they deliberate for a while. Initially, everyone's annoyed with Henry Fonda because he's the one guy holding out. Gradually, uh, he starts to persuade other people, and then throughout the movie, it ticks off. And uh, eventually, by the end of the movie, the young man is acquitted. Okay, so um, that's essentially the bare bones of the plot. I did recast three of the jurors here. I actually thought about kind of running through this and doing all 12 jurors, but I decided to pick the three, what I would consider to be the main ones. Travis, you have a question. I have a question. Have you ever been on jury duty? I was, uh, so uh, the initial couple times I was called in, I was in college, so I was able to get out of it. I did have you to show up. You were in college, up. so that gets you out it of does, jury yeah. duty? It does, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm in college. You're a pinko hippie. If, well, I, I guess <laughs> if you're away at college. So this was okay. when I was still like my at my Clemson. permanent re- yes, my permanent residence was with my parents and then I get the summons and since I'm at college I don't have to do it do yet. Do you want to know a surefire way to get out of jury duty every single time? Fuck the police. Yeah. You don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. Tell them that you simultaneously donate to the NRA and the NAACP. <laughs> you will never be on a jury. I've been yep. called on to jury duty since I moved to Florence yeah. 12 years ago. I've been summoned for jury Yep, six times. That's so weird how it works. And also when you actually show up, because there was one time about 10 years ago where I did have to show up when I lived here, and I never got called up as one of the the people. But it was so weird because there was one person who got put on four different juries, and some of people like me never got called up. And I'm like, once you get put on a jury, why don't they take you out of the pool? Well, if like, that like doesn't seem fa- that doesn't seem Republic. fair to like if, someone get put on four jury. If you you're know. like me, you kind of become a celebrity juror. Yeah, yeah. they, they kind of want you. <laughs> yeah, and, and you kind of have like a certain uh, a name for yourself. Oh, you yeah. got Sean. Yeah, yeah, Sean on yeah, your jury. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just exactly. thought that that was weird. Like it seems like they would dismiss you once you got put on one no, jury. But no, I've some got, people got I've on four of them. Of, and I've gotten out I never, of jury duty every yeah. single time. I just sat there and they never called my name. And then after four hours or whatever, I went back to work. Not so anyway. Um, okay. So back to uh, 12 Angry Men, which where we don't see the process of how they were picked. But it should be noted, this is 1957. The movie's called 12 Angry Men. And uh, you probably could not do this movie today unless you made it a period piece. Uh, if you made it a contemporary sure. movie, you, you'd uh, have to have a, a, a diversified exactly, jury. yeah, uh, and that's or, which is how. Or you make it a reflection of the current state of yeah division in this country. Yeah, which I'm gonna yeah, which I'm gonna get to. So when I did my recasting of, uh, th- like I said, I picked the three jurors who essentially what I would consider to be the main ones. So juror number eight, of course, is Henry Fonda. Uh, at the time, 54 years old. He's kind of an everyman sort of guy, but the problem with recasting him if we did it today would be the white savior type thing. So you couldn't, I don't think, have a white, especially not an older white guy, be that character. So I I thought of who would be... What about Tommy Lee Jones? eh, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I thought uh, of of who who would be uh, like a minority actor who has... Henry Fonda sort of juice Denzel Washington that was who I thought of in the uh, Henry Fonda role mm-hmm. he would have the same he, he can pull off the same kind of demeanor but he would also give a little bit more edge to it which you would you know which you would expect for this type of role in this uh, contemporary setting um, and so and he would and so that you know the fact that he would have the similar juice of Fonda in the same age range he's actually a, quite a, a little bit older than uh, Fonda uh, was at the time, at the time, but I mean, he was—he's about actually—he was uh, Denzel sixty-eight. But I don't think that in this scenario. Yeah, I don't think that. Ma- yeah, I don't. I don't, think that, I don't think that necessarily. So who's your? Okay. So anyway, so uh, Denzel's the the Fonda character, right. who's the essentially, even though he's not the jury foreman, he's the leader, kind of convincing people. Right. All right. The another uh, juror number three, played by Lee J. Cobb, Lee J. Cobb yep. who is a wonderful actor. Uh, other than this role, probably his most famous role was as the cinema-loving detective in The Exorcist. Yep, nice. Uh, yeah. So if you know Lee J. Cobb, he's very bombastic, uh, 
kind of loud, but very good. Acerbic. Uh, yes. This character, juror number three, is one of the last holdouts, which is why this character is important, and he's kind of a bigot. As we find kind out, kind of. Uh, he yes, and he position. No, he's definitely a bigot. He positions <laughs> himself. He tries to position himself though as a neutral arbiter. He has a notebook at the beginning. He's going through it, so he's trying to position himself. So it is a very Trumpian era type thing mm. so that I think would work. His in favorite a comedy is the toy. Yeah. So I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Not I was trying. Toys. But in thinking <laughs> of. Uh, but in thinking of contemporary actors who could. Uh, pull off that kind of loud bombast Paul Giamatti. That's who I thought of as, oh. as in the Lee J. Cobb role. Oh. Very uh, interesting. Quite yeah. a turn from uh, the, yep. the, yeah. holdovers. the holdovers. Yep. Yeah. Which I haven't seen yet and I'm looking forward to. But Well, um, you are missing out, yeah. sir, because it I'll, is I'll, amazing. Yeah, I, I love that director too. But anyway, so Giamatti, though, as we know, is a great character actor. He can play a variety of different roles, and he can play a nasty character. Sure. Uh, as we saw in 12, uh, 12 Years a Slave, he had the small role as the slave trader. Mm-hmm. Um, and, another and other, mo- another uh, number movie. Yep. Um, 12 and, and, Years in Tibet. Yeah. Another and, one. And also that kind of loud, sonorous thing that Lee J. Cobb does, if you know how he acts, when he gets really gets into it, uh, a role... Giamatti was the guy that I thought of. So Giamatti for juror number three, who's the last holdout and has to give up in order for the kid to be acquitted. Uh, one more. Yeah, and then one, one more. more. Uh, Martin Balsam as the jury foreman, juror number one. Martin Balsam uh, most famously played uh, Milton uh, Arbergast, the uh, detective in Psycho, who no shit. goes down the steps nice. when he uh, gets murdered. The private detective, yes. He's important because he's, you know, the foreman, and uh, he's a high school teacher, so he has this kind of neutral sort of uh, attitude, but occasionally, though, kind of has these little bursts. So for his character, I thought of Tony Collette. Uh, really? Because I thought, again, we needed a more diverse cast. Yes. So uh, we need a I'm woman in there. I'm on board 100% now. You and, got Tony uh, Collette in Exactly. This. And Tony Collette, of course, is a wonderful character actor. And uh, to me, she could pull off that role of someone who is trying to be like a reasonable, neutral arbiter, as this Martin Balsam character yes. does in that role. Uh, he tries to seem like he's not taking, even as he votes, he tries to seem like he's giving everyone a fair shake. I think she could pull that off, but also the little quirky touches that Balsam gives to the role. She Can do she as have well. dissociative personality disorder too? <laughs> yes. Also, second question. United States Do you of think terror. that Martin Balsam is upset that his wood is so light? Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Todd, thank you. Yes. Fantastic work, sir. Good job. <laughs> Great. Over film. to Sean. We Over to final. you. This is oh, you, shit. bitch. All right. Don't uh, you try to hijack this show. <laughs> what is your film, Travis? Uh, yeah, three final, minutes. My three final minutes. film is I soaked a documentary. Up all the time, sorry. A documentary called Room 237. It's from 2012. I've never seen it. it. Oh, it's amazing. It's great. Never seen it. It's really good. So I know what it is. Go ahead. Tell the audience. I'm going to tell the audience that it is a documentary film that breaks down a lot of details within the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, and how they might be clues to different conspiracies. 
Didn't I talk about this one on an episode? No, but we talked about Clue during the uh, Blackmail episode. Okay. You said Clues. No, on the Conspiracy Theory episode. Yeah, this was one of mine. Yeah. Anyway. Go ahead. ahead. Sorry. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's If you like film and you like conspiracies and you like uh, plausible conjecture, then check this out. They talk about the moon landing. Mm -hmm. They talk about JFK. They talk about every single conspiracy theory, and it's and supposedly Stanley Kubrick with the moon landing theory uh, helped fake it, right? Right. The, the U. The the you know famous and that's part moon of it footage. Um, and so mostly I chose this movie because I like it and it has a number in the title. <laughs> Those were the but, criteria for the for the episode, yeah. But I did. Recast Stanley Kubrick. Okay, who is your recast for Stanley Kubrick? My recast Kubrick for Stanley Kubrick, and we're we're talking about a 1984. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. He's doing cocaine with uh, Stephen King. <laughs> it's Paul Giamatti. What? Wow. Paul okay. Giamatti. What? Oh my yes. god! The, that uh, the fact that two of us uh, put him on there just goes yes. to show the versatility. It's the yes. Giamatti. Songs. Actually, then that's a, a pretty good pick too. Think could, about it. Yeah. All Think right. about him playing Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna bring I'm gonna it. bring the episode to a to a fizzle, grinding halt, a grinding halt, and a fizzle with a really bad movie. Uh, this one is from 2007. Same year as 300. Mm-hmm. Directed by Joel Schumacher. Again, <laughs> it's the number 23. Oh, with Jim Carrey? With Jim Carrey, Virginia Madsen, Logan Lerman, a very young so, very Logan wrong. Lerman, and Danny Houston, who you would know from American Horror Story. He was the saxophone player in like one of the early seasons. He's um, the heir apparent to the Houston fortune. Right. This is the story about Walter Sparrow. He becomes obsessed with a book that his wife bought for him and begins to believe it was written about him. Hmm. He, uh... The old narcissist complex. Yes. Like the previous movie I talked about, 8mm, another uh, obsession with private detectives and seedy hotels. Uh, Schumacher kind of has a thing for those two. The huge pill to swallow... Spoiler alerts, if you want to watch this movie, don't listen to this. The huge pill to swallow is that they expect us to believe that Jim Carrey was the writer of the book all along. It's a convoluted, messy story about a man who wrote a book, went insane, someone else published it while he was institutionalized, he gets out of the asylum, he bumps into his future wife, she buys the book, he starts reading it, and he becomes obsessed with the number 23 and takes his son along for the ride. Hmm. Like you do. That's the movie. I don't even think I've heard of this one, to be honest. I thought you never heard of the number 23? I've heard of the number 23, it's, but I don't know that I've heard of the movie. It's terrible. It okay. is terrible. It was panned at the time. It has a... I think... That it might need a rewatching. Rewatch okay. it. It has a four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think it is deserved. Okay, maybe that's why I've never heard of it. It just slipped 
my notice and then went into obscurity like where eight, it belonged. Like 8mm, we get to see Joel Schumacher's interpretation of film noir as well as uh, the, the private detective process. Both of your movies are Joel Schumacher? Yes. Holy shit, dude. By happenstance. I picked, both of the, by brain. I picked both of these movies and then realized that he was connected to the two. Okay. Just terrible because you have to endure this film and see it through the narrator's eyes like as he's reading a book about a detective and the film fatale so you see this really shitty cliched portrayal of a private detective and in a, in a film noir kind of setting it's just not good and uh and then of course then you you go through this whole journey the whole film hour and 40 minutes and then you're expected to just say Oh, well, that makes sense. He wrote the book originally, and now that's why he thought it was about him in the first place. Um, just a dud. Just a <laughs> goddamn dud. Okay. Um, so, in the role of Jim Carrey, I'm recasting Paul Dano. Okay. That's interesting. Both, I mean, both played the Riddler. Oh, uh, okay. Well, and Paul Dano definitely has the chops to do pretty much I whatever think he that wants. Paul Dano can do no wrong. And, He's an amazing actor. And uh, and uh, Todd- Dano Nation is a hashtag, by the way, on like Twitter or X or whatever. Really? It's called now. Yeah. That's Todd gets extra points for saying chops a lot. Thank you. The algorithm <laughs> will love it. True. <laughs> um. All right. So that's it. That's my that's my fucking film. We've got some extra time left. Uh, do you want to do the challenge? What is the challenge? Let's start naming off the uh, number movies until we run out. Okay. Uh, um, I thought you were going to say the ice bucket. 12 monkeys. Mm, 12 monkeys. I will see your 12 monkeys and raise it year one. Nine and a half weeks. Um, the number nine. Nine to five. 101 Dalmatians. 127 hours. Hmm. I think that was Joey Poole's other one, by the way. Lock, stock, and three smoking barrels. It's two. Two, whatever. <laughs> 61. 54. The movie 43? Oh, you mm, motherfucker. Yep. How dare you invoke that? I know, right? <laughs> 200 cigarettes. Is that the right number for that movie? 300 cigarettes. Was it 300? Okay. Yeah. I'll go. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, Nine months. Is it nine months? Yeah. It's oh. The oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, yeah. is pregnant. Oh, nine and a half weeks. Did you already say that one? Nine yeah. and a half weeks. Yeah, I did yeah. that one. Uh, eight and a half. Fellini. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, 99 problems and a bitch ain't one. Oh, sorry. That's wrong, wrong genre. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, oh, God. Um, oh, um, uh, damn it. What's the... the What's the date of JFK's assassination where they did the date of that with the, well, they did the date with um what's his name uh, James Stephen Franco King did the movie did this, yeah but th- there's a film based off of it right hold you on sorry oh what's the other James Franco movie 127 Frank- hours yeah I he did that one did yeah that. oh you James did okay Franco, I'm not listening to you JFK movie hold on I'll tell you in just a second no you're cheating 12 11 22 63 the game's over the, no, no, the game's no. over I had you another cheated. one go ahead I didn't cheat it was a you're out. I think that the point's been made that uh, there are a lot of films with numbers in the title. Also, like the 90s where every band had to have a number in the title. Yes. Nobody said 21 Jump Street. Good one. And then there was also 22 Jump Street, the sequel. 
21 Jump Street is a movie, but it's based on a TV, TV show. show. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun doing 300 episodes. I've, I've been a part of all of them. been a part of a lot of them. Um, I'm part of a tiny fraction here towards the end, but I'm happy to be contributing now. Well, let's say we do a few more. Let's do it. You want to do a few more? Episodes. Oh, I thought you meant... Movie numbers. No, we're going to do some more episodes. We're going to keep this bitch going. All right. I think 365 should be like an episode too, because that means you have one episode for every day of the year. Someone could theoretically have a or whole year of cinema chop 365 will turn the clock back and we'll redo the first episode. Yeah. Sci-fi movies. Sci-fi. That's uh, such a broad genre. Oh, 2001. God. Yeah. Might need to 2010. That. Yeah. All that shit. Uh, we've got some cool episodes coming up on the uh, on the horizon. I think we, we've alluded to the 1999 movies episode. I think, Travis, you brought up the uh, Batman Challenge. Batman Challenge. All mm. the Batman films. All the ranked, Batman movies ranked. Ranked. Which wow. means that Joey's got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> Joey Poole, y'all, has not seen The Dark Knight, which I He's think is, well, for, for a cinephile, I think that might be... a one of the worst holes I've heard. Speaking, I have speaking of holes, that, but. we are going to do the You Haven't Seen That yes. episode where we're all going to contribute a list of films we've not seen that we probably should have. Mm-hmm. I won't be there because I've seen every movie. And we're going to let the <laughs> panel vote on what movie you need to watch. All right. And report your findings. So, yeah, we've got some cool shit. We're, we're not slowing down. We're not quitting. We're going to keep going with the Cinema Chop Shop army so uh if you haven't already please follow us on all the social medias we're mm-hmm. cinema chop shop everywhere except for youtube where we are cinema chop shop podcast and you can watch an audio presentation of this very episode and uh tell your friends to rate review subscribe and join us or something. do you have any plugs um i don't it's too new in the year at the I want to plug the band Creed <laughs> and also people who eat Spam salad. Okay. Hmm. And please remember, remember to, to watch Chop Retrofit. Watch Chop Retrofit. Retrofit.